Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The race is on, and there's big changes at McLaren with technical director James Key out and a new three-person technical leadership replacing him that includes ex-Ferrari man David Sanchez. But why has this change been made, and what does it mean for the team's hopes of re-emerging as a title-winning force? I'm Ed Straw, and joining us to answer those questions and more are Matt Beer and Scott Mitchell-Malm. Well, Matt, welcome. You were suggesting before we recorded this is actually your first F1 podcast, which is slightly disappointing so many years in. For anyone who doesn't know, Matt Beer is our illustrious editor at the race, so he's in charge of most things. So uh, why is it taking you so long? Well, you're in charge of the podcast. You haven't invited me. I, I think I think we've all, we've all forgotten because I've done quite a lot of our, our retro F1 podcast, Bring Back V10s. I've accidentally ended up as our MotoGP podcast host. And I've even briefly been a Formula E podcast host, but we just hadn't really got around to super subbing me in. Actually, super's a bit generous, subbing me in on 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 this one until today. But I I, I feel very privileged to have been invited in. I've just got to do the IndyCar one to complete the full set now. Excellent. I've been on the IndyCar one, but yeah, I've never done the Formula E one. So or the MotoGP one. I don't think I'll ever be let near the MotoGP one because I'm far <laughs> from knowledgeable about two wheels. But Scott Mitchell, how are you feeling about having Matt Beer as the uh, as the third member of uh, of our podcast for the first time? Nicely excited. It's good to have a bit more variety on on the podcast. Um, is this where I have to try and fashion in kind of a a, a neater segue into canvassing for sports podcast award votes well we are obliged to tell everyone to vote for us in the sports podcast awards there's a link in there it's this kind honestly ed it's this kind of variety and just dynamism within the f1 podcast lineup that i think makes it so worthy of everybody's votes for 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 an award i think that's a very very fair point i was going to do the quick version of the uh of, of the promo for it with uh, just saying there's a link in the description but you've uh, continued to make our case and of course matt we're drafting him in primarily just to add a little bit of extra credibility and, and heft. trying to get the west country vote 
Exactly, that's <laughs> yeah. an important thing to me. Well, and I am recording from the West Country as well, unusually. So, yeah, definitely aiming for that demographic. But anyone is welcome to vote. But do head to the Sports Podcast Awards page and you can vote for all sorts of podcasts in there. You don't have to vote for us, but we'd be very grateful if you did. So let's get on with McLaren now. Matt, before we get into the fine detail... Looking at that big picture, do you think it was inevitable something like this would happen, given McLaren's form? Yeah, I think it was now, and primarily because this wasn't a one-off. This was the second big disappointment in a year and a half, basically. And also because it, up until the start of last year, when I think I guess the first indication of things going wrong was the, the brake problem in testing that set McLaren on the back foot at the start of last season. Up until then, McLaren had been on, on such an encouraging course you know, it was looking like the team most likely to break out of the upper midfield and join the front runners. There was so much hope in the new investment, new facilities, that kind of thing. It it, it had it's had a lot of nadirs over the previous decade. Um, one of them, its funding situation in 2020, but once that was rescued, it looked in really good shape and things were, were really heading in the right direction. But then to, you know, it, it salvaged last year very impressively in the end. It's, it's still got a... I, I, I always accidentally say it got fourth in the Constructors' Championship, which it actually didn't in the end, but it came very, you know, it came close to it despite that poor start to the year, despite only having one competitive driver. But uh, this this season looked absolutely abject from the start, and for a team to come to its launch and almost apologise for the form its car is going to have right from the outset when unveiling that car is pretty desperate, especially when that team should have been back on the up again this season after going a little bit off course last season. So it's not exactly a three strikes and you're out, but it's a kind of, oh, we could get away with one slip up, but if we're going to make a habit of you know, shooting ourselves in the foot, this doesn't look good for this this massive 2025 project we've we've put so much faith and hype into. Yeah, it's not um, it's not something that I think we can be particularly pleased about given it, it results in someone ultimately losing their job. But I remember us discussing... Uh, around the launch how peculiar it was that James Key wasn't wasn't there wasn't a speaking part of it he wasn't there at the uh, at the test either in a in a public facing role I, I saw him about the place but he didn't do any media and given that this was a time where McLaren wanted to be very upfront about where it was that that was the reason behind the messaging that they, they knew they knew that they weren't going to be starting the season particularly competitively and it was basically better to head that off in advance then get to Bahrain, have its backside handed to it by various midfield teams. I imagine, imagine the way the first two races have played out. How just even more awful that would have looked if McLaren had stuck to its "we want to fight for fourth" messaging around the launch or any anything like that. But Key never got to do any of this himself. It was Andrea Stella and Zach Brown doing the talking for him, and not just doing the talking for him making it plainly clear that the technical team had under-delivered, that targets had been missed, um, and then throwing forward and putting quite a bit of pressure on an upgrade that we haven't seen yet will come in in, in April. Um, all, all, all that is to say, we were a little bit worried about what all this meant for Key. It might just be coincidence, but it didn't sound like an organisation that was 100% set on its technical department, despite Zach saying at the launch that they have complete faith in James and and, and blah, blah, blah. So I think this uh, the writing has been on the wall for a little while. I don't think it was totally obvious when they ended last year, but I agree with Matt that when you factor in all the different slip-ups over the last sort of 12 months or so and just how much that's disrupted the momentum, 
it's clear that McLaren was on a bit of a backwards or downwards trajectory rather and it just it did feel like action was coming sooner rather than later. Uh, Scott you mentioned the how bad the start of the season had been actually the things that have gone wrong in the races so far have almost not been to do with the car not being very competitive it's <laughs> it's broken down in weird ways it's had first lap collisions it's had Lando Norris making a kind of massively out of character qualifying mistake we don't we don't. We almost haven't yet seen how uncompetitive the car really is because too many other things have even got in the way, and it might be better than it's it seems. But all the evidence is like actually this is this is also a really uncompetitive car, even when it is running smoothly, even when it isn't being driven into walls, and that's um, that's if anything more worrying. It's a fringe top ten car um, on one lap pace and and race pace, which is if anything slightly better than McLaren kind of indicated it might be around the launches, but. You're right, that kind of exaggeration of how bad the season start has been has only has created a bit of a false message around this restructuring. It, I, I've seen a few places have sort of inferred that this is in response to such an abject start to the season, and it, it, it isn't. And, and, and the proof of that is kind of what you were saying there, Matt, that actually like the, the car's not some stunning disaster and it's not... Um, you know, come out of the blue or, or anything like that. If anything, it's other factors that have caused the start of the season being so bad. And I think that just reinforces that this has been something that McLaren have been thinking about and working out how to do probably for a few months now. Yeah, you, you call it a fringe top 10 car and say that's better than expected. Uh, during testing, I can remember us discussing whether to run a feature entitled Is McLaren Definitely Last at one point because there were there were questions along those lines and we, we agreed it wasn't that bad, but... When you're looking at a team with not so much McLaren's pedigree, because McLaren's pedigree is quite a historic thing now, but McLaren's reputation and ambition and saying, okay, it's not last, it's fringe top 10. That's better than we expected. (laughs) That's pretty damning, isn't it? I think the big question here, though, is, of course, it's a results-based business and McLaren are clearly underachieving. They underachieved to an extent last year with the problems. But it's always that balance of how much is... It necessary to make the change how much it is it the football manager mentality of oh you change the technical director so I think the key is that the changes do evolve the team it's a shame for James Key because he did seem to be initially doing such an effective job he joined in March 2019 he was part of the new broom that changed things there and they made good progress obviously got up to third in the constructors championship then they slipped to fourth when inevitably Ferrari moved ahead so I guess that's the big question, isn't it? It's one thing to say this isn't working, we need to make a change. Another thing for that change to be the right one. And obviously there's been all the talk about the infrastructure changes, etc. But I certainly agree that it seems that McLaren's been edging this way for some time. And I think, as has been said, you have one bad year where things don't work quite as hoped. Even if you recover, that's fine. But a second one, just not ideal. Yeah, I think just to pick up on a point you meant that you mentioned there about infrastructure, if you wanted to be particularly sympathetic towards James, you can argue that you know he, you can point out that he he alongside Andreas Seidel, who was team principal at the time and, and joined about around the same time as Key did, they were absolutely instrumental in arguing for the new wind tunnel and simulator. They went in and recognised that McLaren had this infrastructure shortfall and were working with compromised tools in the interim while they waited for all that to come online and Key will never get to play with those tools he, he will never be able to develop a, and d- design and develop a McLaren with a, a quote-unquote proper wind tunnel you know a bespoke McLaren wind tunnel and simulator and the other manufacturing 
improvements that that they've been making but that does tie into a bit of why this decision has been made now McLaren has under delivered underperformed with the existing infrastructure and the concern was obviously that if they didn't have the right structure and people in place now to get the most out of their equipment there's no point or you know they'd be wasting the new wind tunnel and simulator because they would just be doing a a less than 100% job with that as well. Yeah, Ed, you mentioned that Key was part of the new broom arrival in in 2019. And I I felt really positive about what McLaren was doing around that time, you know, with with Andreas Seidel coming in as well. And even under Zach Brown's leadership, that was still quite a novelty at that point. You know, in in the mid 2010s, McLaren have been quite a hard team to like amid like that second bit of Ron Dennis era and all the hubris around Honda and everything. It was like it wasn't a team it was you could feel a lot of sympathy for. And then you had a new regime there, new technical people. I loved the fact that Key was someone promoted from having overachieved at likes of um, the various iterations of, of Jordan plus Sauber and Toro Rosso. This was a this was a reward for doing a lot with limited resources and now getting a chance to show that he could help turn around a, a kind of fallen giant. And it really seemed to be going going well initially to get back from where McLaren had been uh, when when Brown took over to where it was around the time, you know, obviously it, it won a race and was was third in the constructors' championship and kind of settling in around that level. I guess the question is, and this is a huge oversimplification, the question is, was that the right technical setup to get it back to respectability, but to then move forward into the new era with the big resources and with some other other teams doing big investment and their own new facilities? Does that now need a whole different structure, different bunch of people? Was Key the right person to get it that far? But now, now the kind of limitations that set up are being exposed. Yeah, I think that's a good point. It's not necessarily a question of was Key a success or a failure. You could argue he's been a success in terms of overseeing those years and getting them to a position where they can take the next step. We'll get onto the new structure shortly, but I think you're right to say that that might be part of it. It might have been this was that phase of the team, and now there's a new phase which James Key isn't part of. Yeah, when you look at what they've done over the last couple of years in this new aero rules cycle, I think it's fair to say that this is the first time that we've really seen a proper, proper James Key-led McLaren because he came in in 2019. That car was obviously already set. And then that car, because that there was the maturity through that rule cycle in 20 and then the rollover for 21 because of COVID and the rules that were put in place around that, barring the changes that McLaren had to make to adjust from a Renault engine to a Merck engine, actually the year-on-year development of the car, it hasn't been radical because there hasn't been a big, there wasn't a big rule shift until 22. So this is the first time that Key and his technical team under his leadership have done a brand new McLaren, I think, from start to finish. I'm sure some people would argue that he did have a bigger influence on previous McLarens, but in terms of absolute start to finish, understanding and interrogating a new rule set, this was the first one. And they were behind. They played catch up through the year. They did a very good job. Matt alluded to that earlier at catching up through the year and seeing what other people had done and going from being on the back foot in terms of methodologies and ideas and actually being able to recreate it themselves. But then the reason they're on the back foot for 2023 is that they've missed something around the floor edge geometry, they came to that really late, only when they realised that their original design wasn't going to be compatible with the 15mm increase for 23, got onto that late, found some really good gains, but not in time to start the season. So what they've become, or what they've been exposed to be, is a team that is very, very good at adjusting, very good at reacting to problems, but 
maybe lacking that little bit of understanding creativity spark that allows them to lead in a rule set like this and I think yeah that I think that idea that Key was a really really good technical director for that interim period but maybe not McLaren's ultimate ambitions might sound a bit harsh but it is at least consistent with what we've seen in terms of the weaknesses of the cars that have been produced. I do suspect we'll probably see him in Formula 1 again. He's very accomplished, very experienced. He suddenly knows what they're doing. So he certainly would interest other teams potentially. Does anyone see him turning up anywhere in the near future or do you think it'll be a bit of time out? What do you reckon, Scott? Um, I th- would imagine he'll be back in, in, in F1 as soon as, as soon as he's able to. I wonder if McLaren will would hold him to you know, 12 months of um, being sidelined or anything like that. I would imagine that the fact that he's being booted out sort of allow, like, will hopefully expedite him finding somewhere else. I, I thought he would be a really good option for Williams as, as technical director for what they're trying to achieve. But the indication that we've had from James Vowles is that he wants someone new to a technical director role, someone in a maybe a senior aerodynamics position or, or senior engineering position that can then go to the technical director responsibilities are fresh and, and and grow with with the team. So maybe James isn't the right fit there. But there are other teams in the midfield, teams with bigger ambitions. I believe that the person he joined McLaren with, Andreas Seidel, Seidel didn't recruit Key, but was a big fan of his. You know, he's got Jan Monshow at, at, at Sauber leading that technical team, but would Key be considered an upgrade on him? Seidel knows him. He knows his strengths and weaknesses. Could that be something... For, for Key to explore. And obviously he knows that team from the past. I'd be surprised if he winds up being recruited by one of the biggest teams, given the recent track record and the fact that he has been ousted. But if I was any of the sort of teams from 6th to 10th, shall we say, I'd be seriously looking at him and thinking, that's someone who can probably bolster our ranks. Yeah, I think you're spot on with that, Scott. It's that middle to the back area. Key's got a proven record of getting a lot out of not much resources at the teams he was with before McLaren. I can't think of any massive James Key failures at those teams. And maybe not any massive standout, wow, that really overperformed cars like a kind of Adrian Newey, Leighton House kind of level of massive underdog overachievement. But he's someone who can make a midfield technical team run really well. And I don't think, and he's done that across multiple rule sets. Okay, he hasn't succeeded with McLaren in, in this in this set of regulations, but I don't think that means he can't get his head around them. It's just that this circum- this circumstance that McLaren at this point has not been the right one for him. When Simone Resta gets pulled out of Haas and sent back to Ferrari because there's nobody left in Maranello, there'll be a good <laughs> there'll be a good space waiting at, at Haas. And I, actually, with that kind of may- maybe a slightly similar structure to the one that Key excelled at at Toro Rosso, where you have a, a, a another organization that's supplying some parts, but you have to do a bunch of your own aero work as well. That is what Haas has with Ferrari. That could be something that plays to Key's strengths quite nicely. I think it'd be a great addition for somewhere like Haas. Yeah, absolutely perfect for, fit for him, I reckon. Yeah, I think well, what we've done there is prove why he would appeal to so many teams. And that's why it's very, very difficult to see him being out of F1 for long, provided, of course, he wants to stay in Formula 1. I suspect he will. I think he's still got some unfinished business there. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the icon of vacations. Icon of the seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. 
Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Well, Scott, let's move on to the new structure now. So with Key gone, can you explain how it's going to work at McLaren from now? Uh, broadly, I'm a little bit worried about it and not completely convinced. But basically, the way it worked before, Stella being promoted to team principal has changed this slightly. But under his leadership, the way it's worked or the way it would have worked with the existing structure, you'd have had James Key as a singular technical executive figure on one side and then Piers Tin as the operations director on on the other side and then obviously James has a whole technical team uh, reporting in uh, to him the way they want to move away from that because um, they they feel that having one single person in charge isn't the right option so he leaves and in his place you have this three person what they're calling an F1 technical executive team um, three specialised technical director roles that report into Stella so uh, Peter Prodromu will be technical director aerodynamics. David Sanchez joins from Ferrari. I think he can't join until the start of January next year. He goes back to McLaren after a decade away as technical director, car concept and performance. And then Neil Haldy is promoted to technical director, engineering and design. And there are some other sort of changes immediately beneath or adjacent to that. So Tin, for example, he's now chief operating officer and has an expanded role. And the purpose of this it, this this is all top level stuff obviously but it's alongside a broader expansion of the technical department because McLaren realized last year after making a lot of staff redundant to slim down for the cost cap that it had actually overdone it and needed to hire more engineers again so it's been on a bit of a recruitment drive McLaren sees this as an opportunity to actually have a better more efficient structure that is more effective as well gets the job done. I think it's meant to work a bit more in line with the way Ferrari works, where they don't have so many of those traditional roles like an out-and-out technical director, but they have a head of vehicle concept, head of chassis, head of aero. It 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 kind of the idea is that I think to have more of these specific departments so that each individual department is getting the most out of themselves. That's how it works in theory, but I when I originally read this and was trying to piece it together in my mind, Ed, and I think you'll appreciate this, I just had the word matrix ringing in my ear. Well, this is a good opportunity for me to read a quote. This is from an article that appeared on a very fine website called The Race by a writer called Scott Mitchell Mal at the start of last year. A quote from Zach Brown, who says of this period before Key was there, it was a complicated organisation that Martin Whitmarsh had put in that created a blame culture, a lack of responsibility, and then that just started to manifest itself. Now, that's talking about the matrix structure and it didn't really work. That same article had Andrea Stella saying it was a little bit confusing. So, presumably, given both Stella and Brown know how this can go wrong, it's 
not going to be the same mistakes of the past, is it? It's it's got to be different to that. And fundamentally, a matrix style structure or more flat technical leadership, while it's probably harder to do, can work, can't it? It's like that old argument in football: man marking or zonal marking will do either well, and you're going to work well. Well, it it, it can work in in theory because it works in an, an entire industry. Whitmarsh brought that in from aerospace, didn't he? So it's it is established. It wasn't something that was just made up pulled from someone's backside and said, I'll do this, make it work. But um, I'll do a little pop quiz. I'm actually going to read this on behalf of, uh, this is uh, a point that our editor-in-chief, Glenn Freeman, mentioned when I was working on a video script around this. So a pop quiz for the two of you. Who called that original matrix structure at McLaren an unnecessarily complex and wretchedly unworkable system? Oh, that's blunt. Oh, that's a good question. Um, Was it uh, James Key? (laughs) <laughs> no not quite i'll give you a hint he was this person was one of the reasons that system was deemed necessary uh adrian ah, Newey, of course yeah. yes yes actually i adrian. recognize that now yes because of course he was considered to have too much power and influence so when he moved to red bull and left them in the lurch so this was partly a, a response to that that's a good point and in fact that matrix system it was brought in while he was there but then it really solidified once he'd moved on yeah so it is um i, I would be amazed as you say because Stella and Brown have both lived McLaren with that structure in place. So the way they envisage this working in, in practice must must be very, very different. And it will be interesting going to Australia next week to actually get firsthand a bit more of an explanation for her, how they see it plan, panning out in, in reality. But there are clearly risks attached to this. You've explained the limitations to that structure before and how badly you can get it wrong the whole point of moving away from that and into this when um, Andreas Seidel came in as team principal it was really clear you had Stella I think was racing director Key was the technical director and Tin was the the, the operations director I think um, so the, the whole point was really simplified obvious reporting lines good accountability and responsibility because everyone knew a, had a single figure that they responded to I I would give McLaren a benefit of the doubt and say that this can presumably work like that. But if they get it wrong, maybe it'll be just another step back towards a, a different kind of technical mess. Yeah, you know, as the concept of multiple senior chiefs without necessarily one bigger senior chief is not a completely flawed concept. I just can't think that it's actually worked at a top, top Formula One team yet, that we've actually had a title-winning team without a very clear technical director-level figurehead uh, and that's what worries, worries me a little bit about this. Just you know, when you look at it on paper, I think it, it seems much more logical to have this flatter structure with more specialised le- leadership departments. But I just haven't seen any precedents for it working yet. And for them to be reporting into the team principal, team principal's job is probably big enough already without having that. It's not, it's not saying that uh, Stella suddenly has to become technical director and team principal, but it does seem like it becomes a kind of job and a half for him. It's got a bit of a feel of the Ferrari system, hasn't it? With the particularly that period when Mattia Bonotto was in charge, the former technical director, and then Sanchez was part of that sort of structure. And Ferrari have had reasonable success, but not quite the ultimate success with that. It's more success than McLaren's had, certainly. Yeah, and I think it comes down to how well you do it. And one of the things that always strikes me is. Formula One teams are huge now, and jobs that were once done by perhaps one person or part of their, part of their job was just to do this one thing are now done by little subgroups, and there's groups everywhere. There is so much to keep track of, like a dizzying amount, that you actually feel, from that perspective, breaking up that technical director role is probably quite important. But it's achieving that Red Bull thing, isn't it? They've got Adrian Newey, who 
although he'll always talk up the contribution everyone else makes. He doesn't design the car. He does little bits of it. He did the suspension last year, for example. That's the bit he's been really hands-on on. But he does breathe on the whole concept and gets gets the priority set, if you see what I mean. He's very, very good at picking out where you have to look, where you have to work, the overall concept to be exploited. So that's, I guess, the kind of thing that you need to achieve within this structure. And that's easier to do when it's one person, but there's only one Adrian Newey to go around, which is the really difficult thing. So I guess that's that's the test for, for McLaren. Can they actually do that? And I suppose... Matt, it comes down to if they succeed, we'll say, yeah, they've done it really well. If they fail, I say, well, this was a terrible idea. They shouldn't have done it. Yeah, making a change like this does end up giving you a very easy route to lay the success or failure on, doesn't it, really? It's, it's a, mind you, at the same time, with what McLaren, all the changes McLaren's making, you could, you've got a lot of options come 2025, whether it's new factory, new wind tunnel, or technical leadership, or, yeah, the, there won't be a lot of McLaren come 2025 that looks the same as McLaren did in, say, 2018, 2019. Yeah, very, very big changes. And we can at least say it is decisive action, isn't it? They've said they needed a, a clean break and a change, and you can certainly say they've not done things by half, so we'll have to see how it goes. All of these new infrastructure things coming in, the wind tunnel, the driver and loop simulator, there's a lot going on at McLaren to improve things. And I think all of that long-term stuff is great. It's just that in the moment, getting the absolute most out of what they've got, they are not doing at the moment. That's the thing that concerns me. And then, of course, we've got that Baku upgrade package that we talked about before on the podcast at the end of April that will change direction. So lots to keep an eye on. But, yeah, all we can say is is they've made a, a bold move. Let's see if it pays off for them. Ed, you just mentioned that Baku upgrade, and that has reminded me of like my first thought when this news broke earlier today. It just seems kind of counter to all the narrative McLaren's put out about the Baku upgrade being the thing that will correct the mistake they spotted. It's like, does that now all feel like a bit of a red herring while they were looking to replace Key anyway? Because the, the, the messaging coming out from the team around the launch and testing was, yes, we've got it wrong at the start of the season, but we know why we fixed it. And that suggested a bit of faith in the existing technical structure's ability to fix it. And now when the Baku upgrade comes out, are we expected to look at that and think of it as something that is you know an improvement but don't take it too seriously because that's been made by the leadership structure we've already binned off yeah well there's there's a clear step change in what they're doing there fundamentally they're changing the the floor edges we've talked about this on the podcast before so that is the product of the existing technical structure or the technical structure that's just been removed and changed so it's one of the problems there's such a big lag in formula one teams it's very very difficult to, to drill down into things if that car takes a sudden leap forward which i don't think it's going to do i think it'll be a a step in the right direction rather than transformative but it does unlock much more potential and that's positive about the old regime as it were but yeah i i think this very much feels like the kind of the next step in an evolution of the technical team rather than a complete vault fast if you see what i mean and and those two things i think can fit together the change of direction and the need for the wider for the wider technical change I think it, just to bring back a point I made earlier, I think it really just, all it will do is reiterate the feeling that this cap- this technical team, this structure, this leadership was capable of getting there eventually, but only after everybody else. So that that's all the back of upgrade will do. It will get McLaren to a point that it should have got to months sooner. So if if you persevere with that, yeah, great, they'll, they'll get, they'll make some they'll make some progress and while that upgrade is is there if it yields a decent benefit it'll go to being the maybe the fifth fastest team for a little bit but then it will just be outdeveloped it'll it'll fall behind something else 
when a new, another new idea crops up, McLaren's slow to the party and they'll go, oh, okay, we need to do that. They'll do a really good job of working out how to do that. They'll catch up again, but, but they'll always be in that catch up phase. So Ed's right with that sort of lag involved. We know that it's, you know, two, three months really to, to, to get things from um, sort of that proof of concept phase through to actually on the track. And that is broadly around the amount about the amount of time that Stella has had to review the organization and work out what does it need, where can it be improved. So they're kind of I think that's I think they do go hand in hand rather than being a, a, a contradiction. You can look at that Baku upgrade. If it works, they will go, okay, well that just proves that you know we did have the resources here to do a better job than we did. There are still clearly some very capable people within the organization, but we should have got here faster. That's why we've had to make a change. And if it doesn't work, then they just have even more sort of freedom to just say, well, that was why we made the change because it's just not good enough at the moment. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Well, Matt, McLaren's been talking about this revival for a long time. We've alluded to it already. There's all that new infrastructure stuff that's coming online. It's all about getting back to the front around 2025, certainly by the latest 2026 and the new regs. Are you still convinced by all that talk and that timeline? I mean, I've got no doubt that what McLaren is producing facilities-wise will be a big step forward over what it's got now. It uh, it seems mad to think of the MTC being an outdated set of facilities because I can remember how exciting and futuristic it seemed when it was introduced. But F one F one's always moving on, and McLaren wasn't able to move on as fast as some as some rivals in the last decade or so. So, yeah, there's definitely better stuff coming from McLaren. The problem is no one else is standing still, and it's not just that. There's some people aggressively running around, not even you know, not just standing still. Look at what Aston Martin's doing. Look at how far Aston Martin's leapt forward, well in a similar period of waiting for new facilities. You know, Aston right now is second fastest team a lot of the time, and it hasn't even got to its new factory yet. It hasn't even done the in some ways the biggest part of its revamp. Audi's about to turn up, and. Audi has got someone very sensible in Seidel giving it very good advice on what it needs to be a success in Formula 1. Uh, so there are there are other teams, at least two there, who are going to be making big resources and technology leaps forward. And that's even before you think about that what the likes of Mercedes, Ferrari, and of course Red Bull will be doing in, in the interim as well. Those teams aren't waiting for McLaren to build its new buildings to catch up with them. So McLaren's chasing a moving target while at the same time it's got competitors in similar positions to it right now who are potentially moving faster than it is with their own kind of redevelopment and reorganization so 
I don't have enough faith that what McLaren's doing will be transformative relatively. Um, it might be that what McLaren's doing is just what it needs to do to avoid standing still. I think what you've hit on the head there is all of the reasons why probably they felt they had to make a change because there is so much movement there's a good opportunity to take that leap forward but there's a whole load of teams that are all doing things and working to make this happen so they can't afford just to be complacent and think yeah tomorrow everything will be great because tomorrow never comes and you're just always there bouncing around fourth fifth sixth place and never really getting anywhere Scott do you get the sense that this really changes anything in that timeline or is it as we alluded to before just this next step that needs to be taken in order to fulfill that objective I was quite encouraged by the fact that the McLaren statement and explanation kept that 2025 target firmly in place and basically used it as the the reference point for why they've made the decision and, and the fact that it was necessary. If they'd kicked that down the road, I would have completely lost faith in McLaren's sort of uh, leadership uh, in terms of its ambitions and how it's sort of laying out the timeline because we've had a little bit too much of McLaren borderline making excuses with whether it's short-term stuff like the Baku upgrade, you know, 2023 car. I'll just just wait a little bit longer, wait a few more weeks. We've got something really good coming. And then in the bigger picture, it's I'll just wait until 24, wait until 25, wait until we get the wind tunnel online. We've got something really good coming. And this would have been a really convenient excuse for them to just go, oh, well, we've had this big restructure now and we've got a different technical team in place and David Sanchez doesn't join until the start of 24. So we can't, 2025, no, we wait until 26 or 27. We're going to have something really good coming for the next set of car rules and engine rules for, for, for 26. They haven't done that. Now, they might do that over the next 12 months or so if they continue to get things wrong. They might just go, ah, oh, 25, too ambitious. We'll, we'll aim for the new car rules in 26. That's a great reset. That's the best opportunity for us. But where it is now, there really is still no excuse for them not getting 25 right. You know, they'll have the wind tunnel will come online in a month, no, two, two or three months from now in terms of actually being active so it will start to inform the 2024 car and it will be used for developments for for the 24 car but in terms of a start to finish process that stuff the the tunnel the simulator will be used for 100% of the 25 cars work they will have Sanchez in place in a conceptual role from Jan 1st 24 that's early enough to have a real impact on the 25 car they'll have the other people in place before then, there, there is no excuse not to hit their ambitious uh, hit their ambitious targets for 2025. They're not the only team with those targets, but that McLaren has. There's no reason not to judge them success or failure and what they get right or wrong for 2025. This, this, as far as I'm concerned, doesn't change anything about that. Yeah, I think that's the important thing. You can't afford to give yourself too many excuses. McLaren made good progress early on in this revival bid. It stuttered a bit recently, and this does need to be finding some equilibrium and then pushing on from there. Otherwise, they're just going to get bogged down in that mid-pack, which is, of course, where the team swears it will not be. So I think this will be a decisive moment either way. Either this has been a very good move or it's not the right move, but at least it seems to be being made for the right reasons and keeping that ambition intact rather than just letting themselves relax and kick the can even further down the road. Yeah, I think that I think you've touched on a very important point there, which is that whether it's for the right reasons or not, there has to be a rationale to, to, to this type of thing. We talked about the changes that they made to the structure 
a bit earlier in the podcast and obviously one of the reasons for that was that the amount of blame and finger pointing that had sort of soaked into the McLaren culture and if you wanted to be cynical and harsh you could say this is just that same thing manifesting itself in a slightly different way they've looked at James Key and just gone oh you're the reason we're doing really badly and they've looked at the structure and gone oh we need to do things differently but this is the thing that whenever we talk about culture and we've done it when we've talked about Mercedes now and and Ferrari and it was clear this was something that Ferrari didn't quite grasp last year. Blame and accountability are not the same thing. You you can have, you can take accountability. You can have people, departments, entire organizations be accountable for something without apportioning blame on an individual and that can eventually manifest itself in a single person leaving as it has with key but as long as it's not knee jerk shooting from the hip getting rid of people just so that there's a scapegoat that's just not the same as a, a, a problematic blame culture to go back to something that you said earlier it's a results business and it's just it some at some point the reality will just reflect underperforming in a world where performance is everything. And, and and that's what this, I think, has come down to. Yeah, I think the knee-jerk reaction is never a good thing. So this has been planned for a little bit of time. So hopefully it's with sound reasoning and is in the right direction to take McLaren on the next step. But Matt, are you holding your breath for this McLaren turnaround? Or are, do you think we have to be sceptical or more sceptical than perhaps we were 18 months ago when things were rattling along quite nicely? I think that 18 months point is a good one, really. All, all the evidence for probably, maybe even as much as like three years before that, all the evidence was McLaren's getting back to respectability. It's doing it in a really sensible way. I don't think it's done anything unsensible. It's just shown some limitations lately. It's just shown that maybe it can't make that step up for whatever reason. And it's whether it's been the people or the facilities, you know, we'll, we'll find out over the next next two years. And it is just the next two years. 2025 has 2025 seemed a long time ago when Lando Norris signed his very long deal. Um, sorry, a long time in the future, rather. You know, that was like, okay, if that's what McLaren's waiting for, that's way ahead. Well, now it's that's two years down the line. That's basically nothing, especially when Sanchez isn't even arriving till the start of next season. Time's relatively tight for McLaren to make this work now. It's going to be judged on this pretty soon in F1 terms. So, yeah, I, it's got to prove itself again um, to both you know, outsiders like us and to and to kind of give itself its self-belief back, I would say, because it, it must have had such momentum inside the organisation when it was on the podium so often, when it was the team that was there waiting to pounce. And now this has been, this last 18 months has been, has been quite a blow and it's got to kind of pull itself back together, get back to the head of that midfield where things have got an awful lot tougher since then. You know, when, when McLaren was having its best form of recent years, Ferrari was in a massive mess with its uh, restricted engine. You know, Alpine was further back at that point. Aston Martin wasn't really in, in the picture back then. So everything has changed around McLaren. McLaren has at best stagnated. Now it's changing a lot of things and that it, we just got to we just got to wait and see what the next two years hold. But there are fewer reasons to be absolutely confident in McLaren's big 2025 plan paying off than there were you know, this time in 2021. Well, it's certainly 
you might call it a roll of the dice, trying to change it up to make things work. So good luck to McLaren on that, because we need as many teams fighting at the front as possible. So thanks very much to Matt and Scott for your insight. Head to therace.com. Don't forget the hyphen for all the latest news and analysis. And if you want more to listen to, make sure you try out our other podcast covering MotoGP, Formula E and IndyCar. Plus, of course, bring back V10s. And we've got a special fundraising Ask Us Anything edition to raise money for Blood Cancer UK. Check out our Just Giving page to get involved. And also check out our video channel as well on YouTube. YouTube. Things may be a little bit predictable up front on track right now, but there's still plenty going on off it, so stay with us for everything you need to know for the world of F1. The Athletic.